The reading and preaching of God's holy word tonight comes from a very short passage, just a few verses. Uh, The salutation, the greeting part of Peter's first epistle. So if you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, we're just going to read and focus this evening on those two verses, first two verses. This is God's holy word. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. We'll end our reading of God's holy word there. Keep your uh, thumbs there in 1 Peter 1. We'll look at a few passages uh, throughout the sermon tonight. Well, I enjoyed my seminary years, seminary training very much, and I took a variety of different classes uh, in seminary to prepare for uh, Christian ministry, but there was one class that I enjoyed particularly, and it was a class on denominational history, uh, the history of our uh, Reformed denomination, the URC NA. And if you know anything about the URC, you know that we have a, a heritage that goes back uh, to the Reformation in Holland, the Dutch Reformation. Um, in particular, our denomination has a history that goes back to a number of groups that left the state church, the Reformed de Kerk, because of the unfaithfulness to God's Word in that denomination, uh, and came, emigrated to the United States in the 1800s and eventually founded the Christian Reformed Church and then Later on, we uh, formed the URCNA. And as I learned about the history of our denomination, I was struck by what a sacrifice it must have been for some of our ancestors here in this congregation to leave their homeland, to leave the land that was familiar to them, and for the sake of faithfulness to God and His Word, to, to cross an ocean and come to the United States and to establish churches here. They left their homeland, they left relatives, they left loved ones, and came to a strange place with strange food and an unfamiliar language. They came still speaking with a brogue or with the Dutch or mother tongue, uh, showing all around them that they were not from here. Well, Peter, in the introduction or the salutation to his letter. He's writing to believers. He's writing to first century Christians who are immigrant pilgrims in a strange land in which they feel very much like outsiders, very much like foreigners. They feel alienated from the society around them. Um, Peter here calls them the dispersion uh, from various regions. They were literally dispersed throughout various regions of Asia Minor, which is today uh, Turkey. Peter is is writing to Christians who have been uh, displaced from their homeland. But there's there's a greater way in which they are the dispersion. They are the dispersion. They are exiles spiritually. 
Around this time, Christians in the first century were being regularly persecuted by the wicked emperor of Rome, Nero. They were also surrounded by pagans. They were surrounded by Gentiles who had no tolerance whatsoever for their views and for their beliefs. And so, Peter writes to them as spiritual exiles who feel very much alone in the world, and he calls them to live in such a way so as to be a witness to the pagans around them. The background of the audience of Peter here reminds us that the Christian life is filled with all sorts of sufferings, all sorts of persecutions. That's part and parcel of living the Christian life in this wicked age. And we're beginning to experience some of that even in our own land. In our own land, which was once a haven for pilgrims and Puritans seeking religious freedom, now the Christian faith is little tolerated. It's hardly permitted anymore in the public sphere. And so we're beginning to experience ourselves that tension, that suffering, that persecution, opposition, marginalization for our faith is part and parcel of living the Christian life. But a central theme in Peter's letter is that how we suffer makes all the difference in the world. How will we respond? Will we run away in fear? Will we give in to the impulse to conform to our society? Or will we depend wholly upon the grace of God in Jesus Christ? Will we rely on the power of the Spirit to remain firm until the very end, living as pilgrims among pagans? The call of these few verses here in 1 Peter is that we are to be faithful even while suffering persecution, and that while we are persecuted, we have reason for hope. Hope because our eternal salvation is kept safe in heaven by our gracious God. And we already have the first fruits of that salvation through Christ's atoning death and victorious resurrection. Peter's salutation is meant to assure us tonight, to comfort us as elect exiles traveling the pilgrim's path, that we can suffer patiently, setting our eyes upon the author and the perfecter of our faith. You notice the first thing that Peter says to these, these dispersed Christians is that they are elect exiles. Now, kids, I hope that when I read that, you thought to yourself, hmm, those aren't words I come across very often, but they seem to be words that contradict one another. Because those who are elect are those who are chosen. They are those who are privileged. The elect belong. But exiles are those who are foreigners, those who are cast out. They, they don't have a home. Yes, there is a seeming contradiction in what Peter says about these Christians, but his words are chosen very carefully because he wants his, his readers to understand the tension of this life between our spiritual status and our social status. 
By calling them elect, Peter reminds them and us that we belong to the kingdom of heaven. That's our spiritual status. We are God's elect. We belong. We are privileged. We are chosen by God's electing grace, His chosen people. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter refers to them in this way, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession to proclaim the excellencies who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. You belong. That's who you are. But at the same time, we have a social status as well. We have an earthly citizenship, and as far as that citizenship is concerned, very much, very often we feel like exiles. We're immigrants living in a strange place. We sense that we don't belong here. We're often rejected for what we believe and what we teach and what we confess. We're resident aliens in this world, not just because this world is not our final dwelling place in its present form, but because we are representatives of the light that live in the midst of darkness, among pagan persecutors and angry adversaries that despise God's commandments, that hate us for loving His precepts. Jesus promised us, if you are my disciples, this world will hate you. Now, why is Peter reminding the church that that they're elect exiles, that they have a resident alien status. Is it to make them discouraged? No, not at all. He wants to make sure that they don't, that we don't lose sight of the tension in this present life because it's that tension between our spiritual status and our social status that keeps our faith on the alert that keeps faith's bowstring taut, reminds us that we are to long for our true and lasting heavenly home in the new heavens and the new earth that is to come. And so as we look around us in our American society, we see the signs of the times. We see that the Christian confession is becoming more and more ostracized and marginalized in our society, what is our response to be? Do we embrace the tension? Do we recognize with the eyes of faith that this is, this is our lot until Christ returns to vindicate His church? Or are we trying too hard to fit in? trying too hard to be socially accepted? Are we accumulating for ourselves uh, worldly things, worldly possessions? Are we constantly troubled by worldly matters? Are we too caught up in politics so that we feel better about ourselves when our elected officer is in position? Do we embrace this tension? because of the fact that God desires us to long for a better heavenly country prepared for us. In the book of Hebrews, the writer talks about the heroes of the faith, and this is how he describes them. They were those who acknowledged. They acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. 
They desired a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God was not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. Is that what characterizes us in this present age? Having a faith that acknowledges that we are strangers, that we are exiles on earth. Do we acknowledge that our citizenship is in heaven, as Paul says in Philippians 3.20, and from there we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ? There's a call here in Peter's salutation to embrace, to understand and embrace this status as resident aliens, elect exiles on the earth, and to long for our heavenly home. But Peter writes also to encourage. He writes to assure. God strengthens our heavenly longing here, and He does so by, by reminding us which of those two stati or statuses are most important. The status that matters most, the status that will never change, the status that will never be destroyed is that we belong to God, that we are the elect of God. And he, he writes to assure them of, of this unchanging status and reminds them that it is sure because it has been accomplished by our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He goes on and he says that you have been, you are the elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God, the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. He says God, the triune God, has put His stamp of approval his stamp of completion on your salvation. God's electing and saving and sanctifying grace is meant to build up your hope and build up your courage and your strength amid your lifelong struggles as exiles. Look at these wonderful truths that, that Peter shares with the saints. He says, first, you are foreknown by God the Father. Now, boys and girls, when the Bible says that we are foreknown by God the Father, it's not teaching us that God is a God who has a very strong pair of binoculars. And He looks far down the corridors of history and He sees that you will one day live for Him and choose Him and, and be His child. That's not what the Bible means when it talks about God's foreknowledge. It's talking about God's absolute sovereignty, God's total control in determining who will be saved and then implementing that decision to save sinful people. Uh, Paul in Romans chapter 8 tells us this wonderfully good news, all things work together for the good of those who are called according to God's purposes. How can that be good news for us? Only if it is also true that those who God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says something similar. He says, we were chosen. We were made the, the children of God, His prized possession, before the world even came into being. He adopted us. And He adopted us by grace, not because of anything we had done purely a gift of God. Peter writes this to encourage the saints, to remind them that before they were pilgrims, before they were exiles on earth, they were children. 
children of the Most High God, heirs of all of God's saving riches. Our pilgrim status is the one that is temporary. That is the one that will soon pass away and can no longer be said of us. Because we have been foreknown, elected, saved, predestined by our Heavenly Father before the world even came into being. That is never going to change or be shaken. But how is our election realized? How do we know, how do we gain some assurance that we really do belong to this God? He next refers to the saints as those who are are sanctified in the Spirit. It's in the sanctification or here the conversion of our lives worked by the Holy Spirit that we behold the changing grace of God in our lives. It's the Holy Spirit that brings to completion this washing of sin in our lives through conversion. He's the one who sets us apart unto our Heavenly Father so that we stand before God as righteous and holy. Peter says, or Paul says this in 2 Thessalonians 2, God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. God calls us, He predestines us, and then He completes the work. And the Spirit gives us new life. He makes us receptive to God's Word. He strengthens us and equips us to serve Him. He separates us from sin and sets us apart unto God. And as we know from Romans 8, that His Spirit testifies to our spirits that we are His children. And again, there is nothing in this world not even the persecutions of this life that can separate us from that status, sanctified by God through the Spirit. Why are we set apart and sanctified by the Spirit? Peter says, finally, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Why are we elect and sanctified by the Spirit? Unto obedience unto obedience. The purpose of our election, the the, the natural outworking of being converted by the Holy Spirit is that our lives are actually renewed. Our lives begin to, to model the virtues of God and His Word. That's God's purpose for us, that we would obey Christ. The works that we are called to do, we read in Ephesians 2.10, were prepared for us in advance as a demonstration of this glorious work of salvation that God has worked in us. We've been called and ordained for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, Peter says. And by talking about sprinkling here, what comes to mind, of course, is Jesus' atoning work on the cross. He shed His blood in behalf of elect sinners so that we are cleansed. We think of the Old Testament and the shedding of blood of animals that was constantly required for the forgiveness of sins. But Hebrews 9 and Hebrews 10 tell us that that Jesus' blood shed on the cross speaks a far better word than the, the word of Abel, the blood of Abel, or the blood of goats. Christ's blood speaks finally and completely that we are washed in His 
blood and regarded as righteous before God. Peter is telling us that God receives into His family those who have been sprinkled in the blood of Christ and now live their lives for Jesus in grace and in holiness, being consecrated unto God, conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. What wonderful privileges we have as God's elect. Our election is planned. It's completed by the triune God, and that gives us comfort. It gives us encouragement amidst the trials of this life. God calls us to to love Him totally, to follow His commandments completely, to do His will out of gratitude, but He knows our weaknesses. He knows that sometimes our, our faith falters amidst the tension of this life. Sometimes we fail to love Him the way that we are called to do. And so He has given us this special assurance, this knowledge of our election, of of the sanctifying power of the Spirit in our lives, and the ongoing effect of the sprinkling, cleansing blood of Jesus Christ, which speaks before the Father on our behalf. With these things in mind, with these verities, with these truths held deeply within our minds and our hearts, we can endure anything along the pilgrim's path. If God has done all of this for us, will He not bless us now and tomorrow and for all eternity? And to emphasize that point, Peter says finally, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. A whole sermon could be preached just on these two words, grace and peace. There's a lot of theology, a lot of rich, comforting theology packed into these two words, and Peter says them to encourage us and to sustain us as elect exiles. When we think of the grace of God, we think of the objective change that has taken place in our lives because of what Jesus did on the cross for us. We think of the historical act of Jesus coming to earth, living a perfect life, and then dying on that accursed cross to earn our salvation. There, Christ stood in our place. He died in our place. He bore the wrath of God in our place so that God has has transferred us from being children of wrath to children of God. As what Peter writes about in Ephesians chapter 2, he says in in chapter 2 beginning at verse 4, God being rich in mercy because of the great love of which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ by grace. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him, seating us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Paul sums it up in verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith and not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. And it is that grace that then accomplishes our peace. Peace is the result. It's the, the effect of God's 
grace, a renewed, a restored relationship with God and with one another. Paul, again, goes on to talk about that peace that comes as a result of God's grace through Jesus Christ. In verse 14, he says, for He Himself, Jesus, is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility, making peace. And Peter says, after all I've told you about the foreknowledge of God, His electing love, the sanctifying, consecrating, regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, and the work of Jesus Christ to conform you to His image. After all these truths, I want you to experience the joy, the peace, the assurance more and more day after day. I want you to enjoy the experience of grace and peace. I pray that God would multiply these realities, these blessings in your lives as you suffer as pilgrims. Grace stacked upon grace, peace stacked upon peace, that you might be filled with the fullness of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, you may feel at times that you are a stranger on this earth. You turn on the TV and ten minutes later you have to turn it off because it's disgusting the darkness in which we live in this world, in this society. Maybe you've experienced the cold shoulder of a coworker who cannot stomach the fact that you are a Christ follower. Perhaps you are lamenting the loss of friendship or separation from a family member because you hold fast to the truth of God's Word without compromise. Perhaps you've begun to sense that as believers, as a church, we are becoming more ostracized and marginalized in our society. That may be true, but we must always put our present sufferings against the glorious context of God's outpoured grace and peace. Our God in Christ is always ready to pour out His grace and peace unconditionally in greater and even richer measures when we ask in faith and in prayer, when we focus on His promises contained in His Word. God is no miser. He's not a cheapskate when it comes to providing His elect exiles with grace and peace and assurance and all that we need in this veil of tears. Focus on what you know, that God will complete what He has already begun in you. And knowing that results in true serenity, abundant strength, and lasting comfort along the pilgrim's path. Let's pray together. Gracious God, help us not to lose sight of our status as resident aliens on this earth, as elect exiles. Help us not to lose sight of the fact that this world in its present form is not our final home 
and there will be persecutions, there will be sufferings, there will be disappointments and trials in this veil of tears. As creation and we along with it groan for the revelation of the sons of God. Lord, help us not to put our trust in princes or politicians. Help us not to find our security in our health, in our wealth, in our resources. Lord, help us to cast our cares upon You and let our hearts be comforted by the spiritual realities of our unchanging election by God the Father, the conversion of our lives by the Holy Spirit, and the call and the ability to respond to the call to obedience of Jesus Christ. Father, You have given us all that we need for life and godliness in this present age. You have made us the recipients of Your glorious salvation and of the promises of glories yet to come. We thank You for the heavenly palace that You are preparing for us. Lord, help us to focus on these things. Help us to cast our hope upon these things and to live patiently, suffering if need be, patiently living and waiting for the consummation of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Lord, may we be a light among the Gentiles, a light among the pagans. May our testimony, our words, our actions reveal that we are not of this earth, but we serve a king and a kingdom who is coming to make this earth the new heavens and the new earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.